Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. journey through some of the inspiring saints, not just within Methodism, but within our larger family of faith and Christianity, but especially those that have been recognized and canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. They have set a wonderful standard for recognizing and perpetuating the stories and the inspiration of saints. And today we're going to be talking about a saint who was trying to live out what Jesus is talking about. Now, if you've been in the church for any particular length of time or grew up in the church, chances are you have heard the passage I just read to you. You have heard Jesus talk about the greatest commandment and the second commandment is like it. And so well, for a lot of us, it's like, how are you going to talk about anything new about this? We have heard this ad nauseum. However, what we don't always pay attention to is that this is a continual challenge from Jesus. And to set the scene, the scribe, who is a highly educated and well-respected person in the life of the community in Jesus' day, this is a person who is literate, can write, and can write so well that they generally are tasked with transcribing the scriptures into new parchment. So as they roll into new scrolls that are read aloud each week in the synagogue, or they are a part of the worship life of the entire people of God in the temple in Jerusalem, these are important roles. And because they tend to be writing a lot and writing the word of God, they also have become kind of experts in the word of God. Their role is not to teach like the Pharisees, and their role is not to officiate worship like the Sadducees, the priesthood in the temple, but they are undergirding both of those efforts by continuing to make those scriptures available to generations and then communities all across the promised land and beyond by this point. And so this is a well-respected person. And their scripture tells us that as he was walking by, he noticed Jesus who was gathered there, not only with the original 12, the apostles, but also with other disciples and followers who were gathered there and heard them asking Jesus questions. And Jesus was very able to answer. Well, us, we would say, of course, of course Jesus is. This is God incarnate. Who knows God's word better than God, right? Of course he does. But the scribe seems wanting to test this. And so he issues a, a test. Now, there are 613 commandments in the Bible. That's a lot of commandments. And he says to Jesus, give me the top one. Give me the most important one. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Jesus immediately responds with this passage that he cites out of the book of Exodus, what is known as the Shema. And it was such a well-known piece of text that oftentimes people would have it posted in their homes. They would talk about it. It would be part of the blessing. This is part of the identity of the people of the covenant is that you shall love your Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your spirit, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with all of you. Your entire being shall be united in your love of God. And when Jesus says this, the scribe is probably going, Yes, of course. Yes, you know this one. But then again, shouldn't be too surprised. He's clearly an educated Jew. Of course he knows these things. But Jesus takes that moment to push a little further. He gave him more information than he wanted, that he was seeking. And Jesus says, ah, and here's the second. The second commandment, the second greatest commandment that God has given you is that you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus recognizes that 
First, all things begin with the love of God. With not only a recognition that we are called to love God, but that God loves us. And that is the genesis for our faith, for our good works, for our missions and our ministries, for who we are as a people and how we choose to act, be, and speak in this world. And now type, if we are very technologically advanced, how we choose to put our thoughts, our feelings, and our beliefs out into the world, genesis with that first commandment. But then there's the second commandment, which is the more difficult of the two, is it not? Isn't it a lot easier to love God? Have you ever tried to love a person? It's a little difficult sometimes, right? We don't always make it easy for each other. And so the hardest one is trying to love a person. And you have to love this person as you love yourself. And that's a very hard thing to do because a lot of us know people that we don't even like, much less want to love. We know people that we don't even want to know. That bad our relationship with them. And for Jesus to say, Okay, you've got the first one. You understand, for you are a believer in God. Let's try this one. Now you have to love your neighbor. Well, your neighbor, if you're very lucky, might be somebody you like, might be somebody to whom you're related, might be somebody with whom you have a great relationship and are friendly. Or your neighbor might be someone who you don't enjoy, you don't want to engage with them. But the trick really is that your neighbor is every other human being in the world. That's who Jesus determines as your neighbor. And if you've ever heard the story of the Good Samaritan, then you know that Jesus talks about this. It's the person that you don't want to know. It's the person that you don't want to love, that you are called to love. It is an open challenge to our contentment with only loving people to whom we are related, or people to whom we have an affinity for as friends, or people that we are willing to have a nice, peaceful, collegial relationship as long as none of us gets too deep into politics or how we cut our lawn. Those sorts of people. It's easy for us to love those people. But Jesus is pushing us to love all people. All people. And that's where it gets difficult. And today's saint, Saint Valentine, was a person who was willing to put love as the highest priority. Now, he was clergy in the Roman Catholic Church, and it's believed that he was clergy in the third century. We don't have too much information about St. Valentine. He's actually more of a legend now than he actually is a verifiable human being with a historical account. That's why he's been removed from one of the official calendars of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, but he still has a feast day because at this point, you'd have a hard time getting rid of St. Valentine, wouldn't you? Entire industries would grind to a halt on February 14th if you didn't have a St. Valentine. But there's a good reason for St. Valentine. He was clergy in Rome, and some sources believe that he was actually a bishop, so he would have overseen multiple parishes and congregations and other clergy, and that put him in high ecclesiastical position. He was well-respected, and he had authority in the church. And what ended up happening is that while he was in ministry, Claudius II was emperor in Rome, and Claudius had a problem a real big problem, and that is that he had extended his military force into multiple unpopular and bloody battles and wars. And because of this, there was a run on young men that wanted to join his army. And that's a problem if you want to keep invading foreign lands and having battle. You need people to replenish your ranks and to make your your numbers swell so that your army is more intimidating than your neighbor's army. And he started to think about this, and in Claudius's mind, the problem was families. Young men are too attached to their wives and their families, and so they don't want to come and join my army and risk dying. 
Might be true. Might be true. And so he's decided that in order to rectify this, to fix it, he was going to ban marriages in Rome. Decided that I will fix it. You can't get married. Therefore, you can't be attached to your wife and your children. I will make it so that you cannot get married. And he did that. And because he was the emperor of the Roman Empire, it was widely followed. People stopped performing marriages because if you make the emperor mad, it doesn't go very well. And so a lot of people ceased performing marriages in Rome, and this was a time when a lot of people couldn't really traverse outside of where they lived just to get married and come back. And so they were stuck. There was nothing they could do. Well, in the Roman Catholic tradition, marriage is not just a beautiful covenant between two people before God. In the Roman Catholic tradition, marriage is actually a sacrament, which means it is an outward, tangible, invisible sign of the inward grace that occurs when God bestows it upon us. And we have two sacraments in the United Methodist Church. We have baptism and communion. In the Roman Catholic tradition, they have seven. Some of ours combine pieces of theirs. For instance, we have baptism, and we also have confession as part of our celebration of Holy Communion. In the Catholic Church, you begin with baptism as an infant, then you have your confession, then you have your first Eucharist, so taking Holy Communion in the Roman Catholic tradition. You will have confirmation where a child of coming of age will take on those baptismal vows, just as the United Methodist Church and many Protestant denominations have. You take your vows for yourself, and now you are solely responsible for fulfilling those vows that were taken at your baptism and held in trust by your parents or some other guardian on your behalf. And then things begin to branch. So in the Roman Catholic Church, you get to this point. All Catholics are supposed to get to this point, And then you have to make a decision. You will go one of two ways. You will either decide to go into holy matrimony, get married to another person, and fulfill actually the first recorded commandment from the book of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. Or you will go the other way and take holy orders, which is to become clergy or join some, one of the monastic traditions like becoming a nun or a monk. And very few people get to do both of those <laughs> in the Roman Catholic Church. And so you kind of pick a direction that you're going to go. And at that point, they will only converge again on the deathbed, which is where you have the final sacrament, which is called extreme unction, or uh, as it was taken from the Latin, more commonly known as last rites. At last rites, a priest comes before you and hears your final confession so that you are cleansed of all of your mortal and venial sins. And then you will receive the Eucharist one last time and receive an anointing. And then you are prepared and strengthened to face death. So generally, this is a deathbed phenomenon that happens. We in the, in the Protestant tradition don't have that. We will happily give you communion or anoint you at any time, whether you're on your deathbed or not. But we also don't believe that you need that in order to go to heaven. So the sacraments are ordered in the Roman Catholic Church. And they are very important, and you don't skip a sacrament. So if you're not going to be clergy and take holy orders, then you need to be able to get married in holy matrimony. So when we have St. Valentine hearing that he is prohibited from performing marriages, he knows that what is actually happening in his faith tradition is you are denying people a sacrament. This is the entire reason that John Wesley laid hands upon and ordained Francis Asbury and Thomas Coke so that people could have access to our sacraments. This has actually changed entire trajectories of Christianity when you say that people cannot have access to a sacrament. It is a way in which people can feel with all that they are, with their senses and their bodies, and even their hearts and their minds and their spirits, that God's grace is true and for them. So a sacrament is crucial 
for a lot of us, not only as part of our faith journey and our faith walk with God, but also sustaining it. And for an emperor to tell the church that you can no longer give people to an ac access to this form of God's grace was an abomination. And he, he was willing to put his life on the line to make that available to them. So in the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church, St. Valentine is actually the patron saint of epileptics, beekeepers, and love. Now, some places, if you Google this, will say lovers. However, there's a big difference between love in the Christian context and lovers in the English vernacular. So we're going to talk about love rather than lovers, because that's a little bit different in our current social context where we are. But what ended up happening is that he was a man who was trying to fulfill his holy orders. And he believed that everything that he did should be for the benefit of God's people. And so when he found that people were unable to get married, and then if you were unable to get married lawfully in the church, then technically you could not be lovers. <laughs> and you certainly shouldn't be having children. It was throwing everything out of whack. And so he believed that he needed to be able to provide that at great risk to himself. What happened, though, is that Claudius discovered what he was doing and was very upset about it. And so Claudius decreed that Valentine should be arrested, that he should be drugged through the streets, and that he should be beaten, and then right before he is beaten to death, they will behead him. That is how he should die, for uh, bucking the edict that the emperor had put forth. I will make it so that you will suffer so much that no one will ever defy me again, is the thought process behind that level of death. Of course, for some of us, it's not a surprise, Christ faced very similar death that we remember every year on Good Friday. And so Valentine was going to be murdered for not only his faith, but his actions in his faith, which was to grant this access to the sacrament for God's people. And when he was arrested and awaiting his actual death sentence, he ended up doing something that is very common in scripture. He started to make friends and engage in conversation with his jailer. Now, this happens repeatedly to the Apostle Paul, happens a lot to many of our saints of the New Testament. Um, unfortunately, this didn't happen so much for Jesus. But when you are in this place for a period of time and your jailer is responsible for bringing you food and water and, and tending to you, it's an opportunity to strike up a conversation under this penal system. And so he did. And he happened to learn that the jailer had a daughter who was suffering from blindness. Now, St. Valentine isn't just a priest. He also had been trained classically as a physician. And so he was able to use not only his wisdom in medicine, but also his power of prayer and his office as a priest in order to offer to heal the jailer's daughter, to do what he could for her. And the jailer, of course, said, yes, I would love it if you could help my daughter. And so Paul, Paul <laughs> Valentine was able to do this. He was able to, through what he knew and what he had access to through God's power and grace, to bring her restoration of sight. This and the conversations and the relationship that he established with the jailer led to the jailer's entire family becoming Christian. Having a transformative experience and encounter led to the entire family becoming people of the faith which is a story repeated over and over again in the New Testament. It's actually a story that is repeated throughout Christian tradition and history that it is through conversation and relationship that a lot of people get to experience the power of God and the truth of the gospel story in Jesus Christ. Valentine's story is no different. And it is believed that right before he was hauled off to be tortured and then murdered that he wrote one last note. And he wrote it to that jailer's daughter. 
and he signed it from your valentine. And that is believed to be the inspiration of the first Valentine's Day card, that he wrote her a letter. Now, he didn't write that to her because he had romantic love for her and he wished he could get married to her. It wasn't that. It was that from a position of servanthood, he said, you know, I am your servant. Even though I have done for you this, he didn't consider himself in a position over her. He was very humble about what he had been to her and he wanted her to know that he was glad that he was able to bless her in his final day. And so we have this story that is being recorded because clearly the encounter was so profound for her and her father, the jailer, and the family that they perpetuated that story. This is when she was healed, and this is when we knew that God was our God. They perpetuated that story, and it began to spread, and it didn't take very long for people to start honoring Valentine on the day that he was martyred. Just like Joan of Arc, his feast day is the day that he was killed, February 14th, 2070 AD. And it has been for a very long time that people have been using February 14th to show love to one another, to have that reason, that catalyst for showing people an outward and a visible sign of their emotional tie, their feelings, their sentiments, and their absolute joy in the relationship that binds them to one another. Now, surely in the secular world, most of this is around people who are romantically in love with each other. But in the church, that is not the highest love in the church. The highest love in the church is exactly what Jesus tells us in the Mark and account of this story. And that is the greatest love is to love God with all that you are and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two epitomes of love, which means that every single person can experience that. God allows every human being to experience God's love. If you want it, God says, I will give it to you. But then the challenge from Christ is to take that knowledge and that power and that experience and then to bestow it on another person, which is where we start to have trouble. Because sometimes another person's sin gets in the way of that. If you've ever had somebody sin against you, then you know it becomes really hard to love them as you have been loved. It becomes really difficult. But let's be honest, sometimes it's not just their sin, but our own that becomes a barrier for us to love them. And sin becomes the problem. How do you love someone with whom you have a broken, fractured, and torn asunder relationship? How do you pour out divine love that you have received on somebody else that you can't stand? We probably don't. But God says, I am willing to forgive you so that you must be willing to forgive. And Valentine reminds us of a love that is willing to go to the ends of our being, to push ourselves to the point that we would even die to show that love to others. And we have no recording, uh, or accurate recording anyway, of how many people Valentine helped. Could you imagine being sentenced to that kind of painful end if you had only married one couple. But in God's view, that, that one sacrament for two people was worth it. God believes that any sign of love is worth the sacrifice, which is why God came to us in Jesus and sacrificed God's self upon the cross for every person those that love God and those that don't yet. Because that love is that important. 
And so Valentine was able to show that to people and give them access to this truth by the way he lived and the way that he died. To be able to take his death and his earthly suffering and turn it into an inspiration that, yes, love is that important. Access to God's grace is that important that one would be willing to die that someone else might taste and experience the grace of God. To know that that love is for them. Can you imagine the people that were married by Valentine and then learned that he was sentenced to death because he was willing to put himself on the line for them, their marriage, and any children that they had? What an incredible gift. Now, in the Methodist church, as I mentioned to you, we only have the two sacraments. And in some ways, that's a beautiful thing. It's not that we don't think that marriage is a wonderful way to experience God's grace or share God's grace and bless many people outside of the, the couple that are getting married. But in our tradition, we only have the two because these are the two in which Jesus partook. Jesus did not get married in the scriptures. And these are the two that are open to everybody. Someone might determine that they're not going to get married. And that's okay. We're not denying you God's grace. You might also determine that you don't want to be clergy. And that's great too. We're still going to give you full access to God's grace. And we will give it to you as much as you desire in the sacrament of Holy Communion. You are not restricted. Although, to be fair to the Roman Catholic Church, they perform Mass every single day, whether you're there or not, and you always have access to the confession and pardon and the Eucharist in the Catholic tradition. So yes, Christianity across the denominational lines is trying to give you unfettered access to God's grace. But do we try to do the same thing as those who receive these sacraments? Are we people who are constantly trying to make sure that the grace that we have received is going back out into the world? And that's the challenge of February 14th to the church. That everything that we do, all of our missions and our ministries, our small groups, all of our leadership, all of our vision and our designs for the future are those indicative of the belief that God's love has transformed us and is therefore meant for all people. Because what Jesus did when he issued that second commandment to the scribe, when he summed it up as you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, is that he pushed the border a little further out. In Jesus' day, you were one of two things. You were Jewish or you were not. Most of the time, we refer to those people as Gentiles. You were Jewish and you were in, you were under the Mosaic Covenant, you were under the law, and you knew that God had a purpose and a plan and a love for you, and that you could be reconciled to God, or you were out. And sometimes that was shown geographically, and sometimes that was shown theologically, but that was the world in which they lived. And when Jesus says to a Jew, actually, you have to love your Gentile neighbor as you love yourself, that Jewish man is going, no, I don't. No, I don't. Do you know what they eat? Do you know what they wear? Do you know that they keep pigs? Are you aware of how these people are? And they have all kinds of pagan things that they do that we don't approve of. Why in the world would I want to love somebody like that? Because God does. God loves every single person. It's time we start trying to catch up. That is the problem so hard. It's not easy. But didn't God love you when you were unlovable? 
every time you have sinned, every time you have turned your back on God or you have walked away from what you knew God wanted you to do, has God not constantly loved you, forgiven you, granted you grace and brought you back home? We are perpetual prodigal children of God. And every time we realize that we want to be back in God's good graces and we want God's love again, every time it is there. Unlike humankind, God errs on the side of love. God errs on the side of grace. While human beings put so much time and effort and energy into trying to determine, are you really sorry? Do you really want to be forgiven? Are you entitled to being forgiven? God says, if you ask, you shall receive. What is it that we pray time and time again? Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus has been asking us in a myriad of ways, time and time again, to practice what we pray. Not even what we preach. Practice what we pray. Are you willing to forgive and love? Because every single human being has two people in their lives that this applies to. Someone whom you did love. Someone with whom you had a wonderful relationship, but you don't anymore. And someone with whom you need to be reconciled. Maybe you need to be reconciled with them because you did something. Maybe you need to be reconciled because they did something. For most of us, it's probably both. That we need to be reconciled because that is who God is, a reconciling God, reconciling us to God and one another. And for almost every other human being, there's a second person, a second category, and that is a person that we don't want to love. We don't even want to know them. We don't want to love them. We got a bad first impression. We've got uh, all kinds of our own prejudice and discrimination that we bring to that relationship, and we don't even want it. Those are the people that you hear go, only Jesus can love him. No, that phrase doesn't exist in the gospel. In the gospel, all of us, every single one, we are a person that all of us should love. And that has not been consistently embodied, but I believe that Valentine would say that truth to us, that God's grace is for everybody that wanted it. When they wanted to experience the sacrament of holy matrimony, he gave it to them. When they wanted to make sure that they knew that this relationship, that they were going to foster the next generation of their family, could be blessed and could be holy and could be important in the world, he put his life on the line for them. And tomorrow, you're going to hear and see a lot of people that are going to be talking about romantic love. And romantic love is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But what about the people whom the world says no one should love? What about the people who have an existence that is entirely grounded in brokenness and solitude? Who loves them? We know God does. Will we? And so perhaps the next phase in our journey, not just as individual disciples, but as this body of Christ, is to start to ask ourselves, when I am engaging in something, when I put my time and my energy and my resources into something, does it show love? Do I do it from a place of love? Do I do it with the intention that my words and my actions and my very presence and the embodiment in this activity or being allows another person to experience God's love? For God didn't give us that love to hide it 
and to sequester it and to keep it for ourselves. Because unlike any other resource in the world, God's love and grace never run out. You cannot run through God's love and grace. And some of us have tried. We have sinned our eyes out, and yet God's grace is still there. And if that is true for those of us within the fence of faith, is it not true for those outside? And over the course of our days, collectively and individually, we are going to encounter people who do not believe yet that they can be loved. And maybe they believe this because up until this point in their earthly life, they have not felt loved. They have not felt embraced or forgiven. They have not felt valued. And the way that we talk, the way that we engage, the way that we act or embrace or experience this time together, are we telling them with all that we are, with our heart and our spirit and our mind and our strength, that they are loved? We know this is true because we have experienced God's love for ourselves. And because we have, now we know that it is our duty to love others. And when the church does that, the church goes back to those blessed roots of all the saints who said that, yes, for the sake of those that God loves, I will put myself on the line. I will risk my finances and my resources. I will risk my time and my energy. I will even risk my very life if that is what it takes. For those of us that have experienced God's love and grace know that death is not the end. and We don't have to fear that death. But there are those that don't know. There are children of God who are beloved who think they are despised. There are children of God who think they are less than and unworthy. There are children of God who think that they have messed up too many times to ever be forgiven. There are children of God that think that God's grace is not for people like me, they say to themselves. We are the heralds of the truth that, yes, God's love is for you. It is enough. And not only does God love you, but so do we. And that changes the world. For all too often, we think of Churches as individual congregations, that's a congregational mindset that thrives here in the United States. We think of ourselves as us, and we are here, and we are located in this time and place. But perhaps one of the best parts about Methodism is that we are connectional across time and space, that we are a people that believe that we are connected. And more and more, as we get connected, not just with people in Crozet and outside of Crozet into Albemarle County and Charlottesville and beyond, but now through the gift of technology, we are connected. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.